listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Cole, and I have the privilege of serving here as one of the pastors. Um, and this morning, we are beginning um, a, a short survey through the book of Hebrews. Um, and, and if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you know that it's a, a, a very theologically rich and dense book and that we could easily spend a year's worth of sermons um, exploring it. But, but we're really just going to spend the next eight weeks honing in on the central theme of Hebrews, which is the superiority of Jesus to all other things, even the former ways in which God revealed himself prior to Jesus. Um, the book of Hebrews was, was written to Christians in the first century who were experiencing um, all sorts of difficulty. They were experiencing persecution, um, and, and they were finding their way in the new world following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit. And so what I mean here is the, the book of Hebrews was almost, uh, it was almost certainly written to Christians in Rome. And at, at the time of the evil emperor Nero uh, taking power, and if you know anything uh, of Roman history or Christian history, you know that, that Nero was, was a violent murderer of Christians. And so they were facing grave danger uh, from outside forces, but also within the church, there was a lot of turmoil in this time in the church in the first century because there was a lot of confusion regarding the passing away of the Old Covenant ways of worshiping and serving God through the law of Moses and, and worship in the temple and, and all of these things, and a new way of serving God in Christ. There was a lot of controversy in the church. There was a lot of temptation for first century Christians to be called to turn back to the former ways of Judaism, or for Gentile Christians to turn back to fundamental allegiance to Rome because, because to remain loyal to Jesus was a, a bit dangerous. And so an unknown author wrote this letter. And the, the letter is, is almost certainly originally a sermon or a homily of sorts. And, and it reads like one. I mean, even in what Jordan read this morning, you have him quoting scripture and then expounding upon it. And if you've been a part of Sojourn Madras for a long time, you know that's the style of preaching that we do here. We, we look at the scripture and then we expound upon it. And that's what he's doing here. There's this central theme that he's driving at. Throughout the letter, what we'll see is that Jesus is compared to all of the ways that God has faithfully revealed himself throughout the ages. And, and these marvelous things, he's compared to the angels. He's compared to the prophets, even the greatest prophet, Moses. He's compared to jo Joshua, the conqueror. He's compared to Aaron, the first high priest in, in the tabernacle of God. He's his sacrifices compared to the sacrifices of bulls and goats that were offered for centuries on behalf of the people of God's sin. He's compared to the temple itself and even its most holy place as the dwelling place of God. He is fundamentally compared to the entire old covenant, the old way in which God's people experienced relationship with him, experienced his promises. And yet the thesis statement in all of this is Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It, it, the thesis statement is not, those ways were bad. It's just that Jesus is better. So don't 
leave him. Hold fast to him. Don't forsake him. Now, you may wonder, why is the book of Hebrews so important for us? We don't live in an age of such significant transition as this period between the old covenant and the new covenant, right? That's not where we live. We don't face brutal persecution from evil emperors. That's not what's happening beyond our doors. But we do live in an age of, of social and religious climate in which we are constantly being tempted to turn back constantly being tempted to forsake Jesus and the things he has called us to. We're sinful people, and our flesh is tempted to abandon Jesus for any number of reasons. Maybe we are tempted because we've convinced ourselves that that we're really just fine without him. We don't need Jesus. We don't need this religion. We don't need these demands on our life. Or, Or maybe we are tempted to leave Jesus because following him has proven to be too hard. It would be a lot easier. Maybe it would be happier, more enjoyable to to forsake him. Or maybe some of us feel tempted to abandon Jesus because we don't feel we deserve him. We don't deserve God's love through his son, so, so maybe I should turn back. So we're presented with all sorts of, of things that promise what, what Jesus promises, things that promise proximity to power, things that promise the divine pleasures, things that promise security, such that it's easy for us to put Jesus lower on our list of priorities or to cast him aside altogether. And so we need to be reminded of the superiority of Jesus. We need to be reminded that that in light of all things that we might experience, all things that we formerly experienced, all things that God may have formerly shown his people throughout time and throughout space, that Jesus is the supreme one, that he is better, and that we should not depart from him. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we begin this journey. Father, would you come and bless our time together? We thank you for your word that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you've spoken to us through your son. And we thank you that through your son, your speech to us has been gracious speech and glorious speech. I pray that you would teach us to hold fast to Christ, that you would bind our hearts to him, that you would fix our gaze upon him, that whatever else we are tempted to hold to or put our hope in, we would realize that Jesus is better than those things. That the call of Christ is better than other calls. That the glories of Christ are uncomparable to other glories. Pray that you would convict us by your word, comfort us by your word, fill our hearts with awe because of your word, and shape us to be more like you as we sit under your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The author of Hebrews uh, begins this letter with, with this long ago phrase, right? Long ago. Uh, Long ago, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. They were under the rule of a tyrant who orchestrated the death of God's sons as best he could. And and yet, God saved his people. On the final night of Israel's stay in Egypt, God sent an angel to do his bidding. And the angel administered the justice and salvation of God as he killed the firstborn son of all the host of Egypt and passed by the households of the Hebrew families. 
Then the people of God plundered the Egyptians and fled, and yet death pursued them. They were cornered, the army of Pharaoh on one side and a great sea on the other, and God told them to enter the sea. And God parted the sea, and they passed through this watery grave to the other side, to a promised land of of new life, while the Egyptians behind them were swallowed up in the waters. So then the people of God are in the freedom of the wilderness, and God spoke to his people. He delivered to them this law and this covenant through Moses, through, as Deuteronomy 32 says, ten thousands of angels. The message given from the angels were the words of God and the covenant of God, and they bore the authority of God. So the people of God whom God had saved out of slavery in Egypt had a law that proclaimed the character of God, the love of God, the righteous faithfulness of God, and the justice of God. The law provided recompense for wrongdoing, and it was to be followed at all costs. It was to be followed because God had spoken, because God had saved, because God sent his angels to bring heavenly things to earth. And yet, in the wilderness, what we would read is that the people pined for Egypt when things got hard. They were tempted to turn back. But God and the faithful ones in their midst would remind them over and over of what God had done and what God had delivered to them through the angels, a covenant full of promises and blessings, but also curses. To turn away from that which angels had delivered was to guarantee God's wrath and to invite death upon you and your household and maybe the entire nation. Don't turn back, Moses warned his people. Keep pressing on. There is a land of rest and milk and and honey awaiting you. And so it mattered to the Jewish people that angels delivered this message to Moses. It mattered to to the recipients of this letter that angels had spoken to their people. Angels, after all, are powerful. They're immortal. They're these heavenly creatures who serve God from the heavenly places. They deliver messages from God and worship God in the heavenly places. They they can take different forms. Angels are trustworthy. They're righteous. They're sinless. Angels can move from heaven to earth. They're far superior to fallen men. In the scriptures, when angels show up, the understood expectation is that people will listen to them. When angels show up, you're expected to listen to them, and yet angels almost always have to tell their listeners not to be afraid because angels are glorious and glory is terrifying. And the author of Hebrews knew all of this when he began his work, when he said long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I love the beginning of this letter because it begins with this glorious and gracious reality that God has spoken. Let's not miss the beauty of that. And I think as 21st century Christians, many of us who were raised in the church, maybe with Bibles in our homes, the reality that God has spoken to us is, is not as awesome to us as it should be. But God, the eternal, the all-powerful, the mysterious and righteous God of the universe, that God has spoken to us. That's amazing that God has spoken to us. And the author of Hebrews says he's done it a lot, in many times and in many ways. But now, in these last days, he has spoken finally by his son. He compares these last days to the long ago days. What is this distinction between these last days and the long ago days? Well, these last days are the days in which God is actively redeeming the world prior to the fullness of his redemption with the coming of Christ the second time. So these last days are the days in which God has finally and fully revealed himself in in his son, and he is currently making all things new. There's not a new word coming from God. These are the last days. That's the comparison to the long ago days. Jesus Christ is is the final and full revelation of God to his people. God has revealed himself through Christ. And one day he will return to judge and to complete this work of making all all things new. His final way of revealing himself is the complete way of revealing himself because it is himself the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of the glory of God, the very Son of God, the divine creator has come to us. It says his, his Son upholds the universe by the word of his power. Like, just think about that. That if for a moment Jesus stopped upholding the universe by the word of his power, it would just stop existing. It would stop existing. This is how marvelous he is. This is how powerful he is, that at all times the universe exists and hangs upon his allowing it to exist and and hang upon him. His son has made purification for sins, having died on our behalf. His son is the king of everything, having taken his seat at the right hand of the father. His son is greater than the angels. And we've already established angels are pretty great. But they're not so great that we would worship them. The author of Hebrews says he's greater than the angels because he has a better name than the angels. Now, in our day and age, we don't think of names as that weighty a thing. Um, They're just a simple identifier. My name's Cole, and what that means in our culture is that when people say Cole, I, I turn and look. You know, or when I submit some work, I, I put the name Cole on it. It doesn't carry that much weight. But in, in, in the Bible, names are more than just a way of identifying someone. Names are symbolic, and names, to, to say the name of God, 
is to more than be like, this is how we identify God. It is the fullness of God's power and his authority. The name of Jesus is greater than the angels. So let us ask, what is that name? Son of God. That's the better name. The angels have the name of servants of God, but Jesus is the son of God. This is the name that is so much superior to the angels. And if Jesus is the son of God and God has spoken through him, then we should listen, right? Here the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the message given to Moses on Sinai, i.e. the Old Testament, the law, it was reliable. The author of Hebrews says it was a reliable message. It was reliable, one, because it was given by those who had the authority of God, namely angels. It was given through Moses, a prophet of God who spoke with the authority of God. It was given to the people of God. It revealed the character of God. It imparted the justice of God. So it was the most glorious revelation that God's people had ever experienced up to that point when Moses came down from the mountain with the law of God. In fact, Deuteronomy 11 shows that to follow the law would prove to yield blessings and life for the people of Israel, and to reject it would yield curses. It's part of what the author is saying when he says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution in, in that law. Now, what that doesn't mean is that the Old Testament was, was a covenant of works by which people are saved according to their works. But what it did show is that faith in God and the, his promises involved or was manifested in participating in his covenant relationship through faith and obedience. The author of Hebrews says, that was good. That was a reliable message. But now God has spoken through his son. And he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. So, so in the old covenant, to reject God, to reject his will, to reject his law, was to incur curse upon you. Divine curse, death, and wrath. And he says that was a reliable message given by angels, but now God has spoken by his son, so what will befall us if we don't listen to it? God's Son has come and revealed himself to us. If we don't listen to him, what can we expect but wrath and death and misery and destruction? How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The revelation of Jesus Christ is a glorious and terrifying thing. This is the first of many warnings sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews. And, and, and there's a pattern to these warnings. The author will make these claims and, and explain the the glory of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, and then he'll stop and he'll warn, warn his li listeners against turning away. 
So it's always Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is good. God has revealed himself to us. So don't turn away. So hold fast. His point is that if the angels spoke to you from heaven, you would consider it a grave danger to ignore their speech. And I think all of us would agree with that. If an angel showed up and spoke to us from heaven, we would listen or we would at least consider it dangerous not to. But now God has spoken to us as himself, as a human being, as the very God-man in Jesus Christ. So what do you think will come of you if you do not heed his voice? But he isn't only warning us with fear, although we should be afraid. We should be afraid to stand before the holy God of the Bible and to reject him. But his warning isn't only one of fear. He is also warning us with a plea regarding the blessings of God through Christ. And this is hinted at when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect what? Such a great salvation. Such a great salvation. He doesn't say, how shall we escape if we don't obey such a terrifying king? Though he could have said that. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The author goes on to describe that great salvation. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, first, I want to go back to the beginning of this, because the author of Hebrews uses this awesome rhetorical device that I think it's easy to miss. He says, it has been testified somewhere. And it's easy for those of us who are less familiar with, with like, first century Jews to think that maybe the author of Hebrews, like, kind of remembered this quote, but he didn't know where it was from. And that is absolutely not what he's doing. In fact, to say it has been testified somewhere, it's, um, it's a rhetorical plea to the absolute authority and recognizability of what he's quoting. He's quoting from Psalm 8, which would have been one of the psalms that all of these people had sung from their youth, that they would have known well. It's one of the pinnacle psalms for the people of Israel, where King David is looking up at the grandeur of the universe and reckoning how small am I in comparison to the majesty of God. And then we also are learning through the author of Hebrews that it was a prayer of Jesus as the incarnate son. So when he says it has been testified somewhere, it would almost be as if I said, somebody once said, and then I quoted like the preamble to the Declaration of Independence. Like you would be like, oh, I, I see what you're doing here, you know. But he goes and he quotes, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? He, he says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So Christ not angels or prophets, is the one who will subdue all the world before him. This was part of 
the creation mandate given to Adam. That's why the author of Hebrews is going to it. That, that Adam was told in the garden to fill the earth and to subdue it. And Adam failed in his duty. And the people of God failed in their duty to do that. And now he says, it's not angels who are going to do that. You know it's not men who are going to do that. It is Christ who will subdue the world to put all the enemies of God in subjection before him. Christ will be the one who fulfills it. This God-man descended physically and in glory below the angels for a little while. Just for a little while. So that God's grace might be given to everyone for all time. He tasted death on our behalf. And he is now crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering. Don't miss that. It says that, that he's crowned with glory and honoring and honor because of the suffering of death. The glory of Christ, the honor of Christ is, is in his death. And I think it's easy for us to think of the cross of Christ this as a borderline shameful moment on his resume where he lowered himself before his people, where he allowed wicked men to subdue him and to slay him and to kill him, where he received the jeers and taunts of, of the evil people. But the author of Hebrews is saying that which is seemingly a blight on his resume is actually the very reason that he is the glorious one. It is the reason for his honor. Christ's suffering is the pinnacle achievement of his kingship. It goes on, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Don't miss that. Christ is the one for whom and by whom all things exist. You exist because Christ created you and he created you for himself. All things exist for him and by him. But it says, For it was fitting that he, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect suffering. It was fitting. The author says it was fitting that God should die in the place of man. It was fitting. But that seems to me like the greatest scandal right? It, it doesn't seem fitting that we don't receive our just punishment. It doesn't seem fitting that an innocent one should die in the place of all the guilty. It doesn't seem fitting that the suffering should befall the righteous Lord of all creation and, and that we should somehow be spared. That doesn't seem fitting at all to me. And yet the Holy Spirit of God through the author of Hebrews says it was fitting. It was right. It was the natural and good and full and I dare say only possible manifestation of the fullness of God's character, love, glory to, to bring many rebellious and disobedient and wicked and lowly and undeserving sons and daughters to glory through the suffering of the God-man. It was fitting. God's love is so immense that it could not and would not, and never planned on being fully revealed apart from the crucifixion. The only way we fully see the glory of God is that he died for us. It was fitting that God would die for us, that he would suffer in our place, and his glory is made perfect in his suffering, it says. Because his suffering is the crown of his love. And because his suffering is the means of his victory. 
His suffering is the vehicle by which he puts all things in subjection under his feet. It goes on, it says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. If you are in Christ this morning, through faith, he is not ashamed in the heavenly places, sitting at the right hand of God, to call you his sibling. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. In the heavenly places, in the presence of, of, of the angels and the Father and all the saints who have died before us, Christ is not ashamed to tell your name to those peoples. He's not ashamed to sing your praise in the courts of heaven. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like his brothers, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Christ is supreme above angels. Why? Because he's become like us. He says he had to be made like us. The angels ascend and descend upon the stairway between heaven and earth. This is what we see in Jacob's vision in Genesis. But what Christ reveals in his earthly ministry is he says, I'm the staircase. I am the way that permanently allows heavenly things to be given to earthly sinners. His flesh and his blood are our passageway to glory, and they're the reason he can rightly call us brothers because we're blood-bound. Like brothers, his death is the treasure map for us to life. He is the supreme one because he's accomplished what only he could accomplish. The ability for the sons of Adam to become the brothers of the Son of God. Angels bring good news. And they minister to us at times. But Christ is our good news. He has dealt with our sins. He has endured temptation. His suffering was not in his death alone, though that was great suffering as he absorbed the fullness of God's wrath that was due to us for our sin, as he endured the abandonment of his heavenly Father, as he endured the taunts and jeers of men, the physical pain and agony and horror of dying on a wooden crossbeam. That's great suffering. But the author of Hebrews says that his suffering was also in that he was tempted. So when you are tempted, he is your help and your portion. See, many of us don't even uh, have any way to understand the sort of agony uh, of suffering that Christ endured of a lifelong of temptation without sinning because we alleviate ourselves the, the suffering that comes with temptation by giving in, right? None of us endure suffering from temptation for that long, if we're honest. We just give in and sin. Christ never did. 
His whole life, he endured the temptations of the evil one, the, the temptations of, of his human flesh. He endured the temptation of evil men around him, and yet he did not sin. And this is very good news for sinners. Because it means that you have a God who sees you in your weakness and understands the weight and burden and allure of sin, and he is desiring to be your strong helper if you cling to him. That you may find a way of escape in your time of need. That you may find victory when defeat seems sure. The author of Hebrews goes on and he says that that not only has he suffered on our behalf, but he's plundered the gates of hell. He's plundered the gates of hell and he's robbed Satan of the power of death in his resurrection. So the author of Hebrews makes this poetic and theological claim that all men are slaves to sin and death and Satan because Satan has power over death and that all men fear death. Now, we have a, a younger congregation in the room, and, and many of us probably don't reckon with our fear of death very much, but, but there is a reality in which all humans are afraid of death. And, and more and more that you experience death, and as you age closer toward death, that fear is liable to grow, except for those who are in Christ. Except for those who are in Christ because he's freed us from slavery to Satan and sin and the fear of death because he's plundered death and all of its power. He's crushed Satan and all of his authority such that Christians in the scriptures rightly taunt death, say, oh, death, where is your sting? Tell me, grave, where's your victory? My God is king of life. He's conquered death. The salvation of God in Christ is a total salvation. There's nothing lacking from it. In the former days, God saved his people from slavery and, and the powerful Pharaoh and who kept them in bondage. And then he led them into a land flowing with milk and honey through trials and tribulations, through a season in the wilderness, through all of their temptations to turn back. God was faithful to his people. But now in these last days, God has accomplished something even better. He has saved all the race of men from slavery to death and the devil, and he's let us go free. He has crushed Satan, and he won't throw him into a watery grave like Pharaoh into the Red Sea. Instead, he will throw him into a Red Sea of fire. And he will bring us to the promised land of eternal rest and communion with him, and he will do that following this wilderness journey in life that is still marked by sin and brokenness and fallenness. We will reach a land flowing with milk, honey, and the very glory of God. All of our enemies will be crushed beneath his feet, except for those ones whom he miraculously saves to become our brothers and friends. This is good news that all of our enemies will be crushed beneath his feet. We have many enemies, do we not? Maybe not all human, some spiritual, some in our flesh, some in our thoughts. Christ will subdue all of them. God has spoken in the past. He has been faithful in the past. But now, in these last days, he has outdone himself through Christ our Lord. So never neglect this great salvation that he's revealed in his son. This great salvation by which you're freed, by which you may be secured, by which you may have hope, by which all of your sins are forgiven, by which you will experience victory eternally with God in the heavenly realms. He will put all of his enemies under his feet 
This is very good news, but it's part of the warning as well. Because, because if you do not heed his voice, you will be joining all of those enemies beneath his feet. You too will be crushed beneath the mighty weight of the righteous glory of God. But yet, if you trust in him with faith, if you look upon the revelation of God through his son, you will enjoy all the fruits of his labor, though your labor is very fruitless. You'll experience all the victory of of his resurrection, though you on your own would surely die. You'll experience all the forgiveness of sins through his righteousness and his sacrifice, though you deserve none of it. And God said that it is fitting that he would allow us to enter this sort of rest, to enter this sort of salvation, to experience this sort of love. And so it is fitting that our God has done this, and it is fitting that we should respond in faith, and obedience and worship forever. Let us never lose our awe that God has spoken to us in his son. The psalmist writes, put not your hope in princes. And the author of Hebrews says, and neither put your hope in angels. The princes of heaven and the princes of earth are peasants in light of our king. Impotent in light of our king. So put your hope in him in Jesus Christ, who has conquered through suffering that we might be spared and called his brothers. Let's pray.